Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Dr. Renee Ferguson, who was formerly the head of department for social and economic sciences at the Witwatersrand University. Some of her areas of interest include pre-service teacher education, with a main focus on religion and education, human rights and democratic citizenship education, policy and practice, and life orientation studies. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ferguson. Thank you very much, Amelia. Thank you for having me and hello to all the listeners. It's a pleasure to host you. And one of the core topics of our conversation today will be on life orientation. It's a subject area that I think perhaps sometimes gets taken for granted by those who are equipped with the skills. It encompasses a wide range of topics aimed at equipping learners with essential life skills and promoting personal, social and intellectual development to ultimately be functional members of society. Please, can you elaborate on the importance of life orientation studies, especially in the context of university life for students? Okay, so the first thing that I'd like to just point out is that um, life orientation is not sometimes taken for granted. It is taken for granted as a subject. And that is because there's this misconception that anyone can teach life orientation. Um, life orientation is actually a subject which forms part of the national school curriculum. And we have it as a, an elective subject that in the School of Education. So I'm based in the School of Education. So I'm speaking to my place as a, as a staff member in the WIT School of Education, not the university as a whole. So we have life orientation as one of the elective subjects that students can take to be able to teach it in schools. Now, the problem is that people think, or principals, and some people think that anybody can teach life orientation. But its importance lies in that it's rooted in psychology-related subjects. In fact, there are different streams or disciplines that make up life orientation. I always say that it's some of its parts, you know. So um, there are there's a lot of psychology that underpins life orientation. Um, there's also uh, physical wellness and physical fitness, um, which is an important component as well. Uh, there's a very, very big emphasis on career and career guidance. And then, of course, the parts that, that I'm responsible for, which would be the, the sort of social development side, which is democracy and human rights education. Um, you mentioned my interest in religion and education. So my interest is because of being inclusive of diverse religions practiced in the in um, South Africa, and not just religions, but different worldviews as well. And so I suppose when students do life orientation, those who choose it wear two hats. When they're at when they're studying as teachers, they're learning those skills for themselves. 
They're learning the theory that goes behind it, the philosophies that go behind it, and they're learning those life skills that are also very much a part of life orientation for themselves. And then the other hat is to be able to impart the knowledge and skills associated with life orientation in the classrooms of South Africa. So it's a it's a very, very important role because there's such a personal dimension to it. It, it requires that there's a lot of self-growth in our students before they're actually ready to go out into the classrooms of South Africa, to be able to help young people navigate their way through the trials and tribulations that face them in society. I just I just want to mention as well that um, we we do have a subject called life skills for teachers, and that is a compulsory course that all of our students who are studying to teach in senior in the senior and FET, in other words, in high schools, they all do this course in their in their second year. Um, it's a very tough course to teach because students don't often take compulsory courses seriously. But once they start to engage with us in the course, they realize the importance that it is for themselves as young students having to grapple with the challenges of university life. So once again, they're learning it for themselves and their own personal growth. And then, of course, we hope that they will be able to impart those skills in schools as well. It's very much uh, a two-pronged approach, as you're saying. There's self-knowledge, learning these skills, mm -hmm. uh, learning the um, the information, and then also taking on that ability to to be able to teach others. Um, yeah, so it's it's a it's an interesting combination. Um, when I think about the the challenges that we face in in South Africa, and, and maybe let let's say within the sub-Saharan African context, gender stereotypes, equality, reproductive health, gender-based violence, economic empowerment are all issues that impact women. And unfortunately, sometimes the negative attributes become normalized, that there isn't the self-awareness that actually the things that are happening to me are, are wrong. And perhaps through some of the life orientation programs that you're running, that you have the self-actualization of going, oh my gosh, this actually shouldn't be happening to me and um, I need to redirect. Um, how would you approach teaching students to recognize and and challenge traditional gender roles and, and stereotypes which may limit their potential and also perpetuate this inequality? Mm. So in the in the life orientation courses, which which remember not all of the students in the School of Education are taking are taking life orientation as a teaching subject. I suppose you could call it a sub-major. Um, so the students that we do reach, um, we realize that we're actually in a very privileged position to be able to include gender-related topics in our courses. And so there are actually three of us who are involved. I'm not going to take all the credit for myself. Um, there's one of my colleagues who focuses on personal development, uh, self-awareness, self-actualization, um, and so on. And, and so she would, she would deal with gender-related issues from that perspective. My physical education colleague looks at women in sport and opportunities for women in sport, how women are 
um, you know, how, how women's sports is reflected in the media, um, television and so on. You know, it's always the men's sport to get to get all the audience. Um, and then in my courses, which focus very much on democracy and human rights, I focus very deliberately on gender-related issues and women's rights in my human rights education courses. Um, so we we make a concerted effort to 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 have them there. And I think that's the first step is to to name things. I really believe that if you have something there. You name it, you identify the problems and the issues. You also identify the celebrations, uh, which is also a very important thing. We tend in gender studies, we always tend to look at the negative, but we never look at we seldom take a moment to just celebrate the positive achievements of, of women, um, especially in, in our context in South Africa. So um the, so the first thing is because you asked how do we approach it well the first thing is to name it to to have to have that as a topic in the courses that we teach and then then we have to ha to open up those possibilities for discussion amongst our students um I personally speak about feminist theory. I use feminist theory as an, an underpinning underpinning theory and philosophy. Um, some of the some of the male students get a bit offended by that, and they think we feminists have a, are wanting to have a go at men, which I have to make very clear that we're not having a go at men, but we too want to draw men into this conversation because gender inequality. Why is there gender inequality? It's because men don't want to see that women are as good as men in every in every sense or in or in in every sense. Um, we know their limitations in respect, but but we know that um, that it's the thing. So I can talk a little bit more later on about how we go about, um, you know, some of the approaches that we use in the classroom. And men can be feminists too. Uh, yes, definitely, definitely. Uh, by the time we're done with them, they self-confessed feminists, <laughs> um, and they know that they have a very important role to play in schools. Where, where some sexual harassment takes place, where gender-based violence is happening in schools, where male teachers are seeking sexual favors for marks, for example, from young women. Um, and it's, and we, we, you know, one of the things we keep saying to our, our male students is, you're the ones that can help make a huge difference. If you stand up, you put your hand up and you stand up in order to be counted in this conversation against any kind of gender related issue. It's a huge responsibility, but with it, it brings great change that is so needed. Yes. Yes, so so we have to. It's it's not. Sometimes we all find ourselves in tears in the classroom, um, especially me because of some of because I'm just a big baby. And when I use some of the examples which are current, it really touches me. And then of course it touches the students. So we have to be brave enough to challenge the the, the situations. We to to we, we have to be brave enough to have the difficult conversations. That's what it comes down to, knowing that many of our students are victims of gender-related issues. So we have to have those difficult conversations. Gender-based violence has been cited as a, as a pandemic 
in South Africa by by government. So when you were talking about putting a name to to something, it it's mm-hmm. been declared. How do you incorporate the topic of gender-based violence and all of its sub-variants from domestic violence, sexual assault, harassment into the curriculum and I, I guess in a way uh, speak about prevention but also support? So what what we do, well, what I do from, from my perspective is I anchor it in a general course on democracy and human rights education. So I first alert my students to learning about what human rights are and different categories of rights. I get them Googling in the United Nations websites, having, having a look at different treaties, conventions and declarations on um, on rights to prevent discrimination and abuse of women and children. So we learn the policy first, so to speak. Then we start to bring it down to, then we look at theory that helps us understand. So for example, feminist theories help us understand reasons for oppression. Um, so, so what are some of the reasons why women experience inequality, discrimination, violence, and so on? So there's a, there's a, there's a big general discussion about, about those um, kinds of issues using policy and theory. Then we come down to grassroots level. And because some of my subjects are teaching methodologies, we are able to open up the space in the classroom as a safe space to have discussions, debates, dialogues. Um, and again, um, I use the media a lot because it helps us remain current. Um, just to name some of the uh, some of the sites or, or there's something called Say Her Name, hashtag Say Her Name. I've used that, um, which was women journalists, I think it was, bringing attention to the, 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 the pandemic of gender-based and femicide in South Africa, a year or two ago, I used something called Action Aid, which has wonderful case studies. Well, no, I shouldn't say wonderful, but interesting case studies, interesting explanations of lesbophobic rape. Um, there's a fantastic website called Because I Am a Girl, the State of the World's Girls. And so I get my students to engage with some of those online platforms because that's where young people are today. You know, the world, the internet is their play, is their playground. And so there are wonderful examples of work that is being done to uplift the lives of girls and young women around the world. And so, but then we also use the media and media um, reports to draw attention to what's happening now. So things that happen now and then give the, the students an opportunity to work with those cases um, and to identify the the case the the to, to identify the the uh, oppressions inequalities um, human rights violations and so on um, and we just develop conversation and discussion about those as we go in the classroom but it's very open it's very tough because some of the students feel that it's very close to home women both the women and men's male students I mean some men shouldn't see their mothers being abused or whatever. Um, but that's what we do. We we open up the space. It's declared a safe space. What we discuss in the classroom stays in the classroom, but we hope that the students ha- are absorbing and embracing 
the the knowledge that we're imparting and also just developing together because the students speak from their own experiences as well, you know. Um, and so that's use film. Sometimes we use film um, discussions about patriarchy. Um, yeah. Do you get a sense, given your experience and years of, of teaching these, these curricula and seeing students, that patriarchy is, is starting to disappear or is, is it still very strong from a society point of view? So, so it just depends. It depends on where – because I, I think that religious influences are huge still. The patriarchy reigns um, in religions – and what's really interesting is how women buy into the patriarchy that is expressed either overtly or covertly in their homes, their communities, their environments. Um, I can see it in the classroom when I raise issues about women and so on. They're quite defensive. Um, in other cases, women are – so the patriarchy is there. But what I find is that many of my students who are ex who are, who've experienced patriarchy and currently experience are willing to defy it, and they'll stand up and they will set their sights on a goal. And what I try to do, myself and my colleagues, what we try to do is help them to keep their gazes on that goal and to work towards it. Just because somebody's told you you can't do this, you need to decide for yourself that you can if you want to, if you believe it. So a lot of the time it's about belief, helping to change belief. And you spoke mentioned earlier self-actualization, and it's it's helping our young women to to embrace the idea of self-actualization. I can be who I want to be. Um and being a woman shouldn't stop me from being who I want to be. Because it's a tough thing to change from a, a cultural point of view. And when you've had that lived experience, that's that's all, all you know. So you are likely to, to defend it. But then when you go out into the working world, which hopefully is, is uh, less constrained by patriarchy, you're kind of grappling with these two worldviews, one at home and one in the workplace, and, and um, being able to, I guess, break, break free of one of them. Yeah, and I think that's what I enjoy about the sections that I'm responsible for um, and that I've been involved in reading and researching over the years. Um, is that is is how worldview impacts on who we are, um, and so in my position, I have to, I can't attack anybody. I have to just put the ideas out there, and allow. That's one of the tools that we hope our students acquire is the ability to be critical about cultural practices, religious beliefs, and how that impacts on their being human. Um, so it's a very one, – one of the roles that we try to impart to our students is, is the role of being 
I, I don't like to use the word neutral because sometimes it's difficult when you're passionate about something just to be neutral. But to be impar impartial in a way that you allow the conversations to happen and that the students go away with something. And there's nothing more rewarding than when a student comes back sometime later or emails me or and says, you know, thank you for doing what you did because you've made me think about this, that, and the other. Um, and, and some of them... Some of them are quite disturbing when you think of what young women in particular just accept. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to give an example in a little while. Um, I don't want to keep going and going and going because <laughs> I can. <laughs> but um, but that's that's so that's the importance of our particular subject is that it gives us our students an opportunity to have those very hard conversations and to think about things that they may not have thought about before, which you, you said right at the beginning. Yeah. The, the last area that I wanted to, to tap into before we, we move on, because I think it is, is so critical and it can be a massive deterrent in girls' education. And, and that's the issue of, of teen pregnancy. The, World Health Organization indicated that South Africa has one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy, with nearly one in four girls falling pregnant before the age of, of 20. And when I think of that statistic, yes, you know, obviously we, we spoke about issues of gender-based violence, that things may be contribute, attributed rather to issues of rape. It may also be an attribute when you were mentioning um, girls doing sexual favors for teachers or, or let's say other men we we know the the sugar yeah. daddy scenario sugar daddies yeah but it all stems to this as a lack of of education or be it sex education be it about a contraception uh, health care how can students safely and and without prejudice gain access to reliable information on on these types of of rights and, and information so it's it's such an interesting thing because there is so much out there. There's so much information out there. But the question is, who has access to it? So young people living in rural areas may not have access to to the internet, to global issues and so on, as young people who live in, in urban areas, in more urban areas. Um, but... I think that sex education, regardless of where you are and where you live, whether you live in the middle of Johannesburg or you live in a rural area, sex education has to start at home. But the problem is when sex becomes taboo, people don't speak about sex around the dinner table. Um, the traditional uh, it, it, the traditional um, initiation schools are somehow falling apart because that's where sex education used to happen. Some people have tried to bring it back. Um, but at our on university campuses, there is a lot of there's a lot of material available. One of the services that we provide to our students on campus is campus health. There's information in the um what we call the CCDU, which is the uh, a counseling unit. Um, we have a transformation office. We have a gender equity office. Um, you know, um, the students also tell me they have access to clinics. But here's the catch. When they go to clinics, 
they're doing the responsible thing about investigating options for contraception. But the clinic sisters treat them abhorrently. Um, and this was told to me just at the end of last year by, by a student in a, in a big class, that the clinic sisters um, label them and treat them and, and they, they just express their prejudices right there in the open so that the girls walk away and they don't want to come back again. And this is the cultural thing again. And when women buy into these cultural beliefs and they don't think and they do, and they impart their own pre personal prejudices on these young women who are doing the responsible thing, it's hugely problematic. So the, the, the material, the information is out there, but then schools, teachers in schools have a very big role to play. That's why we train our life orientation teachers. Um, I Yesterday, I sat in a class watching a student teach, and she was doing a lesson on HIV, other sexually transmitted diseases, um, and she was doing it so well as a young, soon-to-be qualified teacher. And so that's where I think it's in the hands of our young teachers to be able to do sex education in schools and to provide the information to young, uh, to, to, to our youth. And out of interest in, in that scenario, how did the kids react? Very well. There, it was a class of girls. It was an all-girls school. Uh, these were grade nines, and they reacted in a very mature way. Um, they, they reacted. It, it, was, it was very good to hear uh, the positive response and how well they engaged with the questions raised by my student. Mm. And I've seen this again and again, a, a very, very positive response especially to young student teachers because they can relate in terms of age, you know. Absolutely. Um, and they go where angels fear to tread. You know, they, I sometimes think, oh, I've said that, you know, but they are so, they, they're really good. They, they, they really um, make sure they do their homework. Um, and not that I, you know, the, 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 to answer the question about the high levels of teenage pregnancy, I don't know how they're going to come down. Um, you know, we talk about education, but in the end, we also have to teach young people to take responsibility for themselves. Um, and those conversations are being held in classrooms, but it's what the uptake by young people when they leave the school grounds, when they leave the classroom, leave the school grounds. Um, you know, we have to actually talk about that as well. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's there's no silver bullet, but no. and there's there's lots of moving parts here, and then there's the the issue of wanting to take responsibility, but then your enabling environment, who's supposed to support you, as you were talking about the clinic sisters, if they're pointing fingers at you, then you are on. How does that impact on you as as, as wow. trying to take responsibility? Um, but the work you do is is clearly critical, uh, feeding young minds both from uh, a student point of view as student teachers that are going out into the world and then touching the next generation to to help them improve their lives. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to Dr. Rennie Ferguson from the University of the Witwatersrand. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Ferguson, 
coming more towards a, a personal um, perspective now in the, in the latter part of the show, I'd like you to share with us, given your experiences of, of dealing with young people in particular and thinking about the future for women, what do you think we need to do to build a, a more egalitarian society where there are no limits for women to achieve their dreams and ambitions? Yeah, that's a very big question. <laughs> um, you know, we all just a drop in the ocean. Um, we all have our little spaces that we work in. Um, but if we work collectively and we all take responsibility for, for, for working towards a more egalitarian society, you know, it's that story of the, the butterfly who moves a molecule on this side of the earth and eventually it causes a tsunami somewhere else. If you, you know, the butterfly effect story. Um, and individual, each of us as individuals working towards a collective goal. Because um, I, I often think to myself, gee, I'm talking about this, but I'm such a small fish in the pond. Uh, but but you don't, we don't realize that each of us who is taking responsibility for doing exactly that is actually touching many lives. But we have to be brave enough to talk about the issues. Um, so when I think of ourselves in teacher education, this year in one of my methodology classes, I have 135 students. If I can influence 135 students, they're going to go into 135 schools they'll teach more than one class can you imagine the effect the whole thing though is about changing people's minds um, changing attitudes so it's not only just about school so bosses and ceos and leaders in business have to give women opportunities sometimes we see it we see great achievements from women who are CEOs in companies in South Africa. We see women politicians. We see women in big business, um, owning companies. But the bulk of our population is poverty-stricken. And, and so it's an ongoing, I don't have a magic wand. But all I can say is that each one of us has to play our part. If it's each of us for someone else especially girls young girls you know maybe some way this dream of an egalitarian society could be realized um, but it takes each of us you know to to think very deeply about our practices whether it be in schools which is my domain or in business somewhere in the workplace uh, it takes each of us You've raised such an important point that we all have an impact, that we all have a, a responsibility towards building a better society and contributing to that and helping other people. Yeah. I wanted to ask you from an education point of view, because we are avid supporters of education, um, How? what are some of your views about education as a an enabler, but also an equalizer for women. So there's a book that I read once called Women Hold Up Half the Sky, something along those lines. Um, but the whole book is about how women suffer because of being women, suffer in childbirth, suffer the effects of unattended 
childbirth, injuries experienced in childbirth, how women have to struggle to gain access to um, to, to to medical assistance and, and so on. But half the population of the world is women. So if women, it's just such, I don't know how to answer the question because it's such a big question. It comes back to my point again. If we are conscious of the needs of women, then we will make plans in the workplace, in schools, to help women achieve so that they can enter the economy. If you're constantly struggling to gain access to anything, you're always going to be contributing to the cycle of poverty. And that's something that I I try to teach my one little tuppence worth in career guidance education. I'm not the career guidance specialist, but sometimes you have to teach these things when there's nobody else. And the point that I make to the women students and and the men too, if you can help girls overcome the limitations of culture, socioeconomic background, so that they can enter the workplace and contribute to the economy, which brings me back to teenage pregnancy. Girls who fall pregnant at school shouldn't be punished for the rest of their lives. They had a baby. Support them because chances are if you don't let them go back to school, they're going to fall pregnant again and then they're never going to get an education. Where's the equalizer in it? Because the boy got away. The boy got away. The boy will continue to have opportunity because he's a boy, but the girl will be be the bearer of the moral responsibility. And that's not fair. That's not fair. So for education to be an equalizer, girls have to have an education. Else you're never going to be level with, there's never going to be parity. And so that's something you can hear in my voice that I'm very passionate about, that it doesn't matter where you come from. You need to have at least grade 12. Having at least grade 12 is the gateway to something else. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a university. It can be there are colleges, there are TVET colleges. There are all sorts of industries where people can do internships and so on. But let this child get her, or this young woman, I should say, get her grade 12 at least, and then we can start talking egalitarian society. But until then, she's always going to be on the back foot. You've really introduced a reality check. It really is is the truth that if we don't have an education, we just don't have a ticket to the game. And I also want to stress to anyone who's listening to us that it doesn't matter how old you are, that you you can go back. There are ways and means of being able to attain your education, take one step at a time and move on. Well, just to give you an example of that, some years ago, I had a I had a guy in a man in my one class who was 50. And he had never had the opportunity because of the the legacy of apartheid and how it had impacted on him. And he came to university and he finally got his degree at something like 52, an education degree at 52. Um, you're not too old. I hope that gives you goosebumps. We have a lot of women who come in their 30s once they've had their children or they've they've managed to get a little bit of financial stability 
they come to university. So you don't have to be a 19-year-old, an 18, 19-year-old to look for an opportunity for education. You know, people, and what's what's lovely about those older students is they're so, so diligent and conscientious um, and they bring experience. So those of you who would like to come to go to university in your later years, you come with a world of experience, actually, prior learning that contributes to how you um, succeed at university. So I'm glad you raised that point. Mm. Thank you for reaffirming that the door is always open. It doesn't matter how mm. old you are, those opportunities will be there. Um, Dr. Ferguson, we've run out of time. So if I can please ask you as we close out today's conversation to, to share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to, to young women on the continent who are listening to the show. You know, it's very difficult for me because I I am in a privileged position and I'm very aware that young women across the continent are struggling. They're struggling with war, with faction fighting. They struggle with patriarchal oppression. Um, but I, I think, you know, I... You asked me this question before, and I, I really had to think. Um, but what I would like to say is believe in yourself. Um, believe that if there's something that you have set your sights on, regardless of where you are, it might take you a little bit longer to get there, but you will get there if you don't lose sight of your goal. Um, and persevere. You know, just persevere, little steps. If it takes little steps, it's okay. But I would just encourage young women to, you know, if you have a dream, pursue it. Don't give up on it because you think you're living in a, a um, you know, in dire circumstances, but just persevere. I'm not really sure what else to say to that because I've never had to struggle in my own life. So I don't know what it's like to struggle, but I acknowledge that many young women struggle to get to where they want to be. But we know of success stories of people who've come from very impoverished backgrounds, very difficult circumstances, um, but finally getting to where they want to be because they believe so strongly. So hold on to your beliefs. Thank you so much. I think it's such an important message, having your dreams, having the hope to fulfill your dreams, sticking with your guns, and it doesn't matter how long it takes. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for joining us. It is a real pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to me and for having me on your show. You have been Bye -bye. listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Dr. Renee Ferguson from the University of the Witwatersrand. 